You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 13th of March 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Mr Speaker, to be frank... Last night's events mean we are not where I hoped we would be today. The UK's Chancellor, Philip Hammond, utters a plausible contender for understatement of the year. My guests, Linda Yu and Carlo Benura, will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the United States' curious reluctance to join the world in grounding the Boeing 737 MAX, California's new governor making good on his promise to close death row, and a new book commemorating journalists killed on the job. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Linda Yu, the economist and author, and Carlo Benura from SOAS. Welcome both. Uh, we will start, inevitably, with Brexit. Days to go, 16. Clues possessed by the government of the United Kingdom about what's actually going to happen. Zero. Last night, the House of Commons shot down Prime Minister Theresa May's withdrawal agreement for the second time. Tonight, MPs will vote on whether to forestall the prospect of the UK leaving the EU on March 29th without a deal, though this is of debatable utility given that the UK leaving the EU on March 29th is, in the absence of an extension or revocation of Article 50, what is going to happen. However, Parliament votes tonight. Um, Linda, we will start with that vote. Is there actually any imaginable point to it, really? Because I'm not wrong about this, am I? The default setting is that on March 29th, I think at 2300 hours, the UK, by force of law, leaves the European Union. Unless an extension is granted. Which this um, vote tonight does not do. No, so that'll be the vote tomorrow. So we've had a drama last night. um, But I say drama, but I think the expectation was the Prime Minister um, with her renegotiated deal last night wasn't going to get a majority. In fact, it was the fourth biggest margin um, of defeat for a prime minister. The third biggest I read in some by some analyses, but a yeah. big, a big one. <laughs> a, a bit, but either way, did not topple Theresa May's all-time no, uh, that's right. margin that for this, the, which was, was the, the first, first time vote. she that's tried right. to get this up. So this is the second vote in the sequence. So the vote today is whether or not MPs um, will say that no deal's off the table. The expectation is there's a majority who will say they don't want to leave without a deal. So that sets the stage for tomorrow's vote, which is will the MPs request an extension from the European Union? The EU has already preemptively said they won't give an extension unless it's for a specific purpose. So if you listen to the Prime Minister in the House yesterday, she said the EU is going to want to know why do you need an extension? Is it to revoke Article 50, which the UK can unilaterally do, it seems, before March 29th? Is it to hold a second referendum? What the EU don't want to see is to give an extension with some complications around the May European elections to think about, to give an extension just so the current Brexit withdrawal deal, which has already been rejected twice, just goes back with some tweaks. So it won't just be the MPs, which I expect tomorrow they probably, well, we'll see, that vote is probably the least certain of these three in the sequence. We still have to get the EU to agree that they would give an extension. And the question is, under what conditions and for how long? Um, Carlo, 
There is another hypothetical here, of course, and while it sounds just insane and idiotic and like the sort of thing that would never normally happen, those are all descriptions you could apply to most of the last three years in British politics. Is it possible that Parliament might vote tonight against the no-deal Brexit and might vote tomorrow against an extension? Um, absolutely, it's possible. Uh, I think I agree uh, that the uh, all the indications are that they're going to approve the um, the act against No Deal tonight. What I'm interested in is some of the arguments by the hard Brexiters that a No Deal agreement is perfectly tenable, uh, because that involves a lot of complicated references to the general agreement on trades and tariffs and the WTO. Uh, and a lot of expectations that things naturally revert to some type of uh, trade equilibrium uh, when things like this, like the uh, no deal, excuse me, when, yeah, when uh, countries can't reach agreements, things revert to um, certain types of tra- trade equilibriums. And uh, in fact, if I'm not mistaken, in order to get all of the uh, most favored nation uh, trading uh, benefits from the EU, the EU would still, in the end, have to agree to those as well. So even if they don't, uh, you know, even if uh, Parliament uh, votes against this, and, excuse me, votes uh, to, yeah, against this, and that the EU, the, the, that Britain crashes out of the EU, uh, that actually um, the future that's being predicted by many of the hard Brexiters uh, may itself not come to fruition and is itself wrapped up in these complexities of having to agree that the WTO is going to have to agree to these uh, new trade relations and Euro- uh, the European Union itself will have to agree to them. Uh, Linda, we heard in the introduction to the show from Philip Hammond, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, as he said, we are not where I hoped we would be today. Um, Echoes there, I suspect, unintentional of Emperor Hirohito in 1945. What was the quote? The war has developed not necessarily to our advantage. Um, The one thing that has shifted slightly today is that Philip Hammond, who I think it's fair to say fancies himself as the next Prime Minister, but then who doesn't at this point, uh, has made some sort of request for cross-party compromise. Is that likely to go anywhere, or is that just the kind of thing you say when the wheels are falling off everything and you think there's a chance you might end up prime minister off the back of it? Well, I think he's made a couple of pitches. I think one is there has to be, and he said it in his spring statement, which was supposed to be about an update on the budget, by the way, yeah, just I, as an aside. L- literally, literally nobody cares. Yeah. So, um, but yes, he he did say, um, well, I mean, he did, he, actually he gave a couple of warnings. One is, by the way, all the numbers you see today are premised on an orderly exit. So if that doesn't happen, there goes uh, there goes the end of austerity. Some pretty stark warnings there. And at the end, he did say, you know, he hopes that um, there will be a consensus and the MPs have to work towards one. Because even if they get an extension, it's possible that the MPs who now take charge of the process won't actually agree on what kind of deal they want. So then by default, by the end of the extension period, if Britain can't actually present something, then Britain leaves without a deal. So he's trying to prevent that from happening. And I think that's why he made that quite explicit um, plea. But remember, the prime minister sort of had invited Labour to have cross-party talks, the main opposition party, and the Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, didn't want to go unless no deal was off the table. So they never really had very constructive talks. And just to add more complications to this dynamic, I think Labour's obviously now beginning, sounds like, 
pitching for a general election. And there's other players to think about. So the independent group, um, which are just about the fourth biggest party now in parliament Mm -hmm. uh, with uh, pro-EU defectors from both Labour and the Tories. Um, There's the DUP, the ERG. So when we say cross-party these days, it's not just Labour. It's actually all of them. And it's very hard to see how they can come to a common agreement actually just on one issue the Irish backstop. This withdrawal agreement has nothing to do with the future trading relationship. It's literally just about whether or not this Irish backstop can keep Britain in the backstop indefinitely. That's the only thing that's on the table that has to be agreed. I I want to move off the subject of Brexit because we will be talking about it tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that and frankly on current form for the rest of our lives until the earth spins into the sun and our Lord calls us all home. But um, just before we move off, I have been asking all our guests in this spot, in fact I'm sure I've asked you both this before, just to sort of keep a running tally on where people think we we are heading. March 30th, I will ask you first, Carlo, are we still in the European Union or are we out? Uh, I think that if you ask me tomorrow after tonight's vote, I, perhaps I'd have some sense of cl- more clarity than I do now. But uh, in the front of my mind, I say I can't see any of this working out. In the back of my mind, perhaps this is some type of faith in modernity. I think that either the EU will, at the last minute, try to create some type of uh, means for the UK staying in. Um, yeah, but the compromise most likely won't come from the UK side. Linda? I think we'll be in. I think um, having followed the euro crisis very closely from about 2010 to 2013 or so, something gets agreed at the last minute, so there won't be a crashing out. But they just, as the saying goes, and this is a saying I heard repeatedly during the euro crisis, politicians are very good at kicking the can down the road, so it just gets kicked out by a few months. Okay, well, let's move along now. The United States Federal Aviation Authority is traditionally the body from which the rest of the world takes a lead in matters of aircraft safety. The FAA is known for being cautious and diligent. In what feels like a metaphor for something, the FAA is, as we go to air, among the last jurisdictions yet to ground the Boeing 737 MAX. Following Sunday's crash of an Ethiopian Airlines 737 MAX 8 near Addis Ababa with the loss of all aboard, most of the rest of the world has barred the 737 MAX from its airspace. Some US airlines still operating the aircraft are offering passengers the opportunity to switch, however. Um, Carlo, is it as weird as it looks that the FAA is not grounding them as as yet, as we go to where? They may change their minds at some point. Right. Uh, I think politically, it certainly is uh, suspect. Uh, I think that at the whether it's coming from the White House or at the, the head of the agency itself, uh, there has to be some calculation here that this is a U.S. industry. Uh, there, the complications with the aircraft are not fully known yet, uh, even though there were. There's now this these new uh, reports that there were these there have been these complaints over. Uh, I think within the last year by pilots uh, um, reporting re- uh, relatively the same. Uh, type of problem that brought down the two aircraft, both not only the Ethiopian jet, but the Lion Air jet. Um, And uh, that is, if this is about politics and the protection of the U.S. industry, then that's a a problem. Uh, Certainly, if you look at what's going on in in Asia, particularly Southeast Asia and China, um, I think that these governments see this jet as uh, perhaps not... uh, you know, capable obviously of flying, but certainly having uh, certain risks in them that um, that 
makes a decision to ground these aircraft, uh, you know, within the realm of calculations. Uh, I think if this is going to go on for much longer, the Trump administration will likely come under more pressure to ground the aircraft. Uh, But Boeing is a huge huge company. It's in a massive uh, competition with Airbus and in Southeast Asia, for instance, this is exactly, uh, you know, these jets sell in the thousands. And um, this is, given the future of aviation in Southeast Asia, this is exactly the type of thing that Boeing doesn't need. Uh, Linda, it's a possibly counterintuitive take, but is there actually any reassurance to be gleaned by the fact that Boeing say they remain confident in the 737 MAX and that American Airlines are still flying them because Boeing are obviously painfully aware, I'm sure, that if something was to go wrong with another one uh, in the imminent future, uh, and obviously we would hope that it does not, but that would be game, set and match for the 737 MAX, wouldn't it? Mm. Uh, Yeah, I, I think Boeing probably has no choice but to say they have confidence in the aircraft. So I think the dispute is over whether or not the pilots have enough time to react, to disengage the, um, basically the computer system taking over. So in other words, what happens in these aircrafts is Boeing says that they have a system where there is an opportunity um, for the pilots to basically disengage and pilot manually, but the pilots and the critics say the time period is too short. So when when um, one of these planes goes into a bit of a downward um, tailspin because of a misreading of, of air speeds or wind speeds or whatever it is, um, it's too short a reaction time for the pilots then to take the corrective action. So there's an ongoing dispute between uh, Boeing and the pilots. And I just wonder if it's because they, so their system, they would have to stand behind. But already, um, it's not just the case that um, Europe and everybody else is already grounded um, this aircraft. Travel agents in the United States, corporate travel agents, are not booking business travelers on these aircrafts for the airlines that are still flying them, which is not just American Airlines, but also, I think, Southwestern and other airlines. So regardless of what's being said, I think there's already enough doubt because these two crashes happen in fairly quick succession because, remember, airplane crashes are very rare. And so for both of these things to happen, and as I say, this pretty well-known dispute about the effectiveness of their system, um, I think regardless of what they do, um, travelers are already making the choice for them. Uh, Carlo, as you suggested, there is inevitably a political dimension to this. And as as an expression of that, we, we have been blessed with the, the thoughts of President Trump on air travel. Uh, he thinks airplanes are becoming too complex complicated to fly. Uh, This is the man who travels regularly on possibly the most complex and sophisticated aircraft ever built, i.e. Air Force One. Um, Does does, does that help? Does it advance the the conversation at all that Donald Trump, who, to the best of my knowledge, has never actually flown an aircraft, thinks they are too complicated? Uh, His brother, I think, I heard was an airplane pilot, though. So uh, perhaps he has some approximate knowledge. My brother is a graphic designer. It doesn't make me one. I, I don't think it helps anything. I think anyone who knows just the smallest uh, amount of knowledge about the airline industry knows that uh, airplanes are are rely, airplane design is relying more and more on uh, new technologies all the time. Whether this technology relates to the type of materials that airplanes use, or the computer systems, the autopilots, uh, and this is absolutely critical to the future of the aviation industry. I mean, designing airplanes uh, to be simpler. I don't know what that would mean. And obviously, many of the 
many of the aspects of modern aviation are premised upon very, very um, technologically sophisticated instruments. I mean, I- I'm old enough to know. I've never said that on radio before, but I'm, I'm old enough to remember uh, when I was a kid, if you took off in an airplane, the takeoff was very, very rough. And you rarely have airplane takeoffs now that are rough. And that's the result of, uh, you know, um, technological sophistication that, again, as you say, Donald Trump uh, benefits from on a daily basis, probably. Um, the push comes to cut the, I'll start that phrase again, the push comes to shove question, which I will put both to you before we take a break, is obviously, would you cheerfully and willingly set foot on a 737 oh. MAX right now, Linda? Oh, I'm asking my travel agents to check, but I'm not traveling in America, so I'm okay, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, Carlo, would you? Uh, I have as much certainty in the um, 737 MAX as I do in Brexit, so in the front of my mind, I say say absolutely not. In the back of my mind, I would say if it's flying, it must be airworthy in some way. Well, on on that skillful linking of our two opening stories there, (laughs) we we, we will take a short break. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Linda Yu and Carlo Benura. Coming up next, is capital punishment in America itself on death row? Mention the name Funkhouse in Berlin and you'll be greeted with excited curiosity or a mysterious smile from those in the know. The former communist broadcasting house got a new lease of life when young musicians hunkered down. Monocle Films set out on a tour of the stunning studios and recording halls. Funkhouse on the same wavelength, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. Tune in now to Mitty Class by Chanel on Monocle 24. Join us over five fascinating episodes as we explore the craftsmanship, precision, artistry and design philosophy of La Maison Chanel and its family of collaborators. In the coming weeks, we'll be sitting down with the likes of Farrell Williams and Lady Amanda Harlick, but this week it's the turn of Chanel President Bruno Pavlovsky, who sits down with Tyler Brulé to tell him more about the inner workings of the fashion house. They want to see uh, the behind the scene of uh, what we are doing. They want to better understand what we are doing. It's not just for uh, the beauty of the product. Download the conversation at monocle.com via our app and other channels or on Chanel's 355 podcast at iTunes. Mitte Class by Chanel on Monocle 24. Listen now. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Linda Yu and Carlo Benura. Now, the 737 residents of death row in California may sleep slightly easier tonight. Newish state governor, governor Gavin Newsom is due to sign an executive order declaring a moratorium on executions on the grounds that they are, as he puts it, inconsistent with our bedrock values. His order will close California's lethal injection chamber at San Quentin Prison. This is perhaps less dramatic than it sounds, given that California has not carried out an execution since 2006. President Donald Trump has accused Governor Newsom of defying voters, though it is unclear which voters Trump means. Newsom's moratorium was a plank of his election platform, and he won in a 61.9% landslide. Um, We should acknowledge, uh, Carlo, I'll ask you first, that California did have a death penalty referendum in 2016 and decided to keep it, uh, 53-47. This, again, despite the fact that there hadn't actually been an execution in a decade when that vote was held. Um, 
the fact that they voted for Newsom anyway, does it suggest that people perhaps actually care less about this than they might think when it's presented to them as a, a single issue? Yeah, I agree with that. I think that uh, that the death penalty is a very complex issue in American politics. Uh, attitudes have been changing over the last 20 years. Uh, you find, I would argue that you find a very strong streak of law and order politics within the general electorate. It doesn't make any difference if you're Democrat or Republican. Uh, but on individual issues like whether the drug war, death penalty, uh, then I think you get a more uh, variegated uh, sense of where voters are coming from. Uh, the death penalty in California, uh, and, and also just to, to take a step back, referendum politics also brings out uh, different dynamics than general yes, elections we, as well. we've noticed. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so, um, yeah, I think uh, it's not a contradiction that um, people might still be or the public in general might be fairly sympathetic or supportive of the death uh, the um, death penalty, uh, but at the same time that that uh, he was elected pre- precisely on this platform. It's not a single issue. I, I think other other issues like this in the United States politics, which really divide electorate, the electorate, is something like abortion rights um, and the death penalty. Perhaps twenty years ago would have because uh, I think Nancy Pelosi ran on a pro-death penalty um, platform when she was running for governor of California. Uh, And now it's very difficult to find mainstream Democrats who would take that position. Uh, Linda, as Carlo correctly points out, support for the death penalty in the US has fluctuated quite extravagantly, actually, and and very, very weirdly. There have been periods in which it was actually even less popular than it is now, uh, well within living memory. It's now at about 56% in favour, but that's down from a peak of 80% as recently as the late 90s. What do you think might account for that? That's it. It, for, for, for what seems like such a, a fundamental principle for people to have, whether you are for or against the state enacting punishment for crime by killing people, that's extraordinarily variable. Mm. I think it's because there have been more projects um, around justice. So um, people who have been on death penalty, uh, subjected to the death penalty on death row, and then um, acquitted by new evidence. There's been a lot of campaigning around this. There have been people who, especially I think around African Americans who had been put um, on death row for lots of reasons within the judicial system and police system that I think are pretty, have come into um, the spotlight quite a lot over the last, um, I would say, few years, few decades even. And in fact, you might remember um, a boxer called The Hurricane, um, played by Denzel Washington in a movie. Um, he was a, you know, so there have been some very high-profile movies around people in an unfairly, um, incorrectly uh, convicted of crimes, and some of them have been on death row. And I think all of that has helped to shape attitudes. And let's not forget, America is pretty unusual in the world for having the death penalty as well. So I suppose another factor might be globalization, greater awareness of how other countries um, view the death penalty. Um, All of that um, could change attitudes and make it less acceptable. I think I think I'm right in saying the U.S. is one of the few countries, actually, that has the death penalty. Most countries don't. Well, it, it, it's certainly among the most uh, enthusiastic employers of the death penalty. Um, but there are, Carlo, extraordinary regional variations in the United States in enthusiasm for it. What, what accounts for those? Uh, well, actually... Um uh, the regional variations are very uh, distinct. Uh, so 
in many in many cases in the United States, uh, when people talk about politics, they like to talk, like to talk about red and blue uh, states, or perhaps the coasts and the central and the the, the middle part of the country in terms of uh, the divisions or cultural, political cultural divisions. But actually, uh, regarding the death penalty, um, the states that employ it the most are clustered in the South. Uh, And this actually is parallel to incarceration rates. Uh, If you look at incarceration rates of per 100,000 people, uh, the states that incarcerate more people than any others are basically Texas, Oklahoma, and then you move east. Uh, For the death penalty, it extends up until uh, Ohio, and it's just a, a cluster which does not, you know, there's no, I think there haven't been any uh, executions in the state of New York since uh, the 1990s or something like that. You know, in the, the Northeast, it's almost, uh, uh, it's completely uh, uncommon. And then in the West, you have states like Arizona, which are fairly more enthusiastic about the death penalty. Uh, but I, again, if we thought about um, perhaps the way in which law and order plays in local politics or the regional level, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we did some type of content analysis of uh, recent elections. You could track the enthusiasm for the death penalty uh, and the um, willingness to apply it uh, with these uh, political dimensions as well. Is it imaginable, Lindy, do you think that we might see the United States, though obviously there will always be people who favour it, as indeed I'm sure there are in pretty much every other country, and there's quite a part of me that dreads to think what would happen here in the UK if that was put to a referendum. But is it imaginable that the United States will ever effectively just give up on it, just move past it, whether whether bit by bit or through federal legislation, or, or, or if you just get to a point where all the states individually just decide we're not doing this anymore? I think we could get there. I think you already see it shifting quite a lot. Um, California is not alone as a state that's put a moratorium on the death penalty. The reason normally is because with technology and forensic, um, better forensic technology, they're able to re-examine evidence. So once you have doubt like that, um, then putting a moratorium on the death penalty is what you've begun to see the states adopt. And it's ultimately a state's issue. A state could decide um, whether they want to or not. And I think the trend is um, it's a it's a as I say it's a pretty um, unusual um, country to have the death penalty. So I think I wouldn't be surprised if we moved in that direction. Okay, well, finally tonight, since 1992, at least 1,337 journalists have been deliberately murdered or otherwise lost in the line of duty worldwide. The Committee to Protect Journalists, a non-profit organisation which works hard to keep that number down, has memorialised a representative 24 of the fallen with a new book called The Last Column. As the title suggests, it collects the final dispatches filed by 24 reporters, including the Wall Street Journal's Daniel Pearl, the Sunday Times' Marie Colvin, the Washington Post, Jamal Khashoggi, and the photographer, Tim Hetherington. Um, Carlo, that is a high number, 1,337, that we know of in the last 27 years or so. Is, is it your sense that journalism has become more dangerous, that journalists are regarded as, I guess, slightly fairer game than they once were? Uh, I would be surprised if that were the case. Uh, I think perhaps what what has changed is the me- media's ability, and this is totally justified, but the the media's ability to actually highlight those cases in which journalists are being threatened uh, and or, or who have been attacked. Um, and actually, one 
uh, one uh, example of this comes from uh, the Committee to Protect Journalists' own website. So I thought that the uh, I saw the videos that were uh, testimonies to of the relatives to these journalists, and it was incredibly, uh, you know, um, I think it was an incredibly important project, and it was heartbreaking to listen to people talk about their loved ones um, who have who have been uh, murdered in this way. Uh, but if you look at what's going on in the Philippines, where there have been 12 uh, journalists who have been killed since the beginning of the Duterte administration, uh, that actually, those murders did not appear on their website. And I was surprised by this, actually. Um, and it is, a, it is a local group, the Committee for, the Philippines Committee for Investigative Journalism, that have raised the profile here. And that's one, one thing that they have, you know, they have international access now with social media in a way that they perhaps wouldn't have had 30 years ago. Is there is there any hope or prospect, do you think, Linda, that a memorial like this does, I guess, cause those people who do regard journalists as targets to think twice? I think so. Um, I think you, I mean, one, one example I can think of is in the US, you have certain cities um, that essentially say that any attack on a police officer, there's zero tolerance. And so I think you need to get journalists to that same point where there's literally so much social and moral condemnation. It's zero tolerance to touch the fourth estate. I mean, the journalism is the is the pillar that holds government to account. And if social media, and I think Carlos Wright can do this, then great. The last column, that book is published by the uh, Committee to Protect Journalists in association with HarperCollins. Further details can be found at thelastcolumn.com and we're very proud to say that the initial print run of the book will be available for consultation and inspection in monocle shops worldwide. That does bring us to the end of today's show. Linda Yu and Carla Benura, thank you both for joining us. The show was produced by Carlotta Ribello, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Rory Goodrick. Our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. Tell us how you listen to our news programmes at monocle.com forward slash m24 survey at 1900 it's the entrepreneurs with daniel bates there's more on the day's big stories on the daily at 2200 midori house returns at the same time tomorrow 1800 london i'll be your host for that as well i'm andrew muller thanks for listening